What's up? What's up? Nick Loper here. Welcome to the Side Hustle Show because multiple streams of income looks good on you. It's time for another round of 20 questions with Nick where I dive into the listener mailbag and attempt to answer for your education and entertainment 20 questions that came in over the last few months. This is the 11th installment in this series, so notes and links to all the resources mentioned are at sidehustlenation.com slash Q&A11. Question for you before we get started. Did you know that 75,000 people get my weekly newsletter packed with money-making ideas? If you are not one of them, I'd love to remedy that. You can join for free at sidehustlenation.com slash join or through the link in the episode description of your podcast player app. And when you do, you'll also get access to hundreds of members-only goodies and bonus files that I've created over the years, plus an invite to the world's largest, most active, and most supportive side hustle community. Question number one comes from Daniel, who asked, how do you get over your fear of asking someone to buy your service or product? This is a good one. So volumes have been written on the sales process and all the strategies that go into it, but getting over the fear comes down to a few things. Number one, believe in what you're selling. If you're selling crap and you're afraid of getting found out, yeah, you should be afraid. Uh, number two is to take a consultative approach. That means asking questions and listening, really listening to your prospects' answers. What do they really want? If your product and service can help them get that, the sale is pretty easy. Remember, we love to buy, but we hate to be sold, or at least I hate to be sold. So how can you get yourself in the position of where that customer is ready to buy from you? There's a no like and trust component to that. If you're coming in completely cold, yeah, you're probably going to get rejected. But that's the second thing, to take a consultative approach. And number three is to make the ask. You may have heard ABC, always be closing, which is a silly phrase. But um, my favorite quote, close, in my house painting days was simply, what do you think? A friend of mine called it the loper close. So in this case, I'd already spent an hour uh, walking around the house, building rapport with this couple, with this family, learning what they wanted, what they didn't want. And then I presented my work order with everything that was included and the price. This is what we talked about. This is how much it costs. What do you think? If you don't ask, it's going to be much harder to make those sales. And so it almost becomes a question of what's scarier to you. Asking someone to buy something you know will help them, or in the words of Mitch Davis from episode 324, having tomorrow look like today because that fear of not asking won out. Of course, there's way more we could cover on the selling and the psychology front and whether it's online or offline. But the main thing here is practice. It gets easier the more you do it. And you'll also learn the common objections and sticking points that then you can work into your copy or your presentation to keep making it better. Question number two comes from Jason. This one came in from the Facebook group, actually. He asked, should I gain a skill to start a side hustle or just jump into some of the ones that have little barrier to entry? So Jason, I don't know if these need to be mutually exclusive. They're may be a distinction to draw between some of the gig apps and side hustles like a Postmates or a DoorDash that have little barrier to entry and other side hustles that require slightly more effort up front but have a bigger upside potential. And nothing against these gig apps, by the way, perfectly viable way to make extra money on your own terms, on your own time. I've gotten notes from people making anywhere from 200 bucks a month to like $4,000 plus on some of these delivery apps, but you do work for it. You put wear and tear on your car, and if you're in a place of financial stability, if you've got a little bit of margin in your life, it might make sense to go a different route. Because 
low barrier to entry doesn't mean you have to cap your earning power based on the time that you have available to put in. Like blogging has a low barrier to entry. Self-publishing has a low barrier to entry. Freelancing has a low barrier to entry. Selling stuff on eBay, right? But in each of those, there is this supporting skill set to learn that can become very valuable either to you in your own operation or to other business owners in theirs down the road. It's taking what you already know, combining it with what you learn while practicing, and then just to keep stacking up those positive gains. Question three came in from Raph, who says, I've been listening to your podcast for the last couple years. I've had some mild success with AdSense and a few affiliate sales here and there, but nothing really substantial for a side hustle. I'm wondering, how do you know what to pursue? My biggest challenge is shiny object syndrome. I start one thing and then I just notice myself dropping off about a month into it. Well, Raph, you're not alone. Shiny object syndrome is very much a real thing. Here's my initial reaction based on what you're telling me. If there is a site or maybe two of yours that has traffic and links and is on a topic that you don't hate, I would probably spend my time there to build out content, to see if I could improve the rankings, the traffic, the monetization. It's hard to know if something is going to work until you give it a strong enough chance. My wife shared this quote with me recently from Angela Duckworth. She's the author of Grit. The quote is, substituting nuance for novelty is what experts do, and that's why they're never bored. So I really like that one because finding new or different or creative ways to do the same work makes it seem new every day. And this perfectly describes me in producing this show. On the surface, it's been doing the same thing every Thursday for seven years. Oh my God, how boring could that be? But it's not. And it's never been that way because at least in my mind, there's some nuance to the work, even if the novelty isn't there. Does that make sense? So I think for Raph, you know, finding some nuance in these projects to make it seem new rather than chasing something completely novel is the route that I would go there. Question four comes from Kat, who asks, do you have to have an established site to qualify for affiliate programs? I found my niche, but will affiliate programs let in a new kid like me? If not, when? And any tips there? So Kat, you don't always need a website to get accepted. For example, maybe you're doing affiliate marketing on YouTube. That's totally a viable thing. But if you do face some rejections, and this has happened to me too, I found if you can follow up with the affiliate manager, somehow get their contact information and explain how you plan to promote their brand, you can usually get them to reconsider because that's the wild card for them. It's like, hey, this is an unknown quantity. You know, our, our brand reputation is at stake here. This was definitely a challenge for me early on. I needed to get affiliate access to be able to access product catalogs and databases so I could build out my site. But some of those sites, some of those affiliates rather wanted to see the finished site first. And so it was very much a, kind of a chicken or the egg thing where it's like, well, I, I can't build it until you have accepted me. But generally, there's a way around that, a way to reach a actual human and explain your situation. Question five comes in from Mike, who asks, I have a website under my own name that's been going for about five years. It's focused on career and business topics in the telecom space. I write resumes and do telecom company marketing content. Based on your episode 426, the story of selling the virtual assistant assistant website, I was thinking of doing telecom recruiter and company profiles that I could promote and then offer higher placement for a monthly fee or trade for an email offer to their list. The question is, should I do it under my personal website or start a new one 
that is strictly telecom jobs focused or telecom company reviews focused or something like that, what do you think? So Mike, I feel like an authoritative site on telecom jobs could be a cool resource and you could still offer your resume and writing services in the near term. For that, it probably makes sense to have it on a more branded domain because over time I can see you getting out of that time for money arena uh, and could probably be a more sellable asset down the road. Now, I wonder if there's a defunct or floundering job board domain maybe that you could buy on the cheap so you're not starting on brand new real estate. And actually what I did when starting Side Hustle Nation was redirect all the content from my old personal blog over to that new domain. That way you can try and capture any existing link juice and authority that your personal blog has built over the years. Question six is from Rochelle, who asked, are there tasks that are too small for virtual assistants? So I love this one, Rochelle. This is something that I wrestle with from time to time too. My general rule is small tasks are worth outsourcing if you foresee yourself doing it over and over again. Otherwise, you know, if it's just a one-off thing, you're probably going to spend more time explaining and delegating that task than you would if you just do it yourself. But if it is a recurring task, yeah, it probably makes sense to create a process and find somebody either on your team or a new virtual assistant to hand that off to. Question seven is from Damien, who says, I've been washing and detailing cars for a few years as an additional income source outside of my nine to five. But what are your thoughts about leaving a side hustle as a side hustle instead of as a business? Next year, I think I'll go back to being a weekend warrior and not put so much emphasis on turning my side hustle into a business yet or at all. Well, Damien, that is the beauty of the side hustle. Hopefully, you don't need to put as much pressure on yourself to take it big. It's an option to pursue with all your heart if your heart's in it. And it's an option to take it easy when it's not. Or maybe there's a call here to possibly raise your prices. I mean, if you're swamped, if you're sold out, that's a sign you're in demand. So make sure to make it worth your while. You might find yourself making more and working fewer hours if that is appealing to you. Question eight is from Patrick. He says, all this sounds really interesting, but can you send it to me in French? Well, Patrick, I am sorry. My foreign language skills are lacking, especially in the French department. I do speak a little bit of Spanish. Not that that would necessarily help you, but probably not enough to write full-length articles or conduct interviews. One tool that you can use is Chrome's built-in translator, which should work on the content on SideHustleNation.com, including the show notes pages. And actually going back to the nuance over novelty thing, a few years ago, I reread the first few Harry Potter books in Spanish. And the idea here was the story wasn't new, but the delivery was. And even though it was a much, much slower process to get through, it exercised a different part of my brain. So that was a fun way to find some uh, nuance. But back to Patrick, sorry, no immediate plans for full translations of the content, though maybe there is an opportunity there to create the side hustle resource or whatever resource you're thinking of that currently only exists in English, bringing it into your own language, bringing your own flavor to it. I think that would be an interesting uh, side hustle to pursue, interesting business to pursue. Question nine is from Hudson, who says, I love your podcast. I'm really looking forward to trying some of this stuff out. There's a bit of a bump that I need to get over before I start. First, I'm 14 years old and it's really restricting my possibilities. Number two, I don't have a job and I'm still looking for one. And third, I have very little money and want to start a side hustle for very little or no startup cost. Hudson, I love that you're thinking about this stuff at such a young age. That is awesome. Dustin, 
Reekman from episode 391 sent me a video about how his kids, they were 15 and 9, I want to say, how they made money this summer doing garbage bin cleaning, which I thought was kind of funny. Like, they're garbage cans. They're supposed to be dirty. Who's going to pay to clean them? But then our green bin had some amazingly nasty growth in it, like all these little larva eggs or something. It was gross. So I could totally see this uh, type of service being a thing. I could see that working. But business ideas for kids, I've got a whole post on this on SideHustleNation.com. I'll link that up for you in the show notes for this episode at SideHustleNation.com slash Q&A11. It could be something like shoveling snow, doing the pet waste removal, like uh, Erica Crouppen has highlighted on the show. It could be lawn care. Ken Elsoff shared a story about his son selling lawn aeration door-to-door. That was part of our Thanksgiving episode, episode 420. I also recommend checking out Don Wetrick in episode 414. Don specializes in a little bit of a different brand of entrepreneurship than the you know lawn care, pet waste removal, shoveling snow type of stuff. Don specializes in helping kids become more creative and innovative, which often naturally leads to entrepreneurship. I thought he had some great exercises for brainstorming some ideas and next steps. So that was episode 414. Question 10 came in from Milan who asked, is there a service you would recommend for monetizing newsletters through sponsorships? Well, Milan, a couple have come across my radar recently. The best looking and perhaps best established of those is called Paved, P-A-V-E-D.com. I just signed up for this myself to have a look look around under the hood, Uh, but you can submit your newsletter. It'll connect with your email service provider to verify your stats You can name your own prices, as far as I can tell, and you can check out the sponsor marketplace to see if there are any existing advertiser campaigns that make sense for you, make sense for your audience. For more on starting and growing a newsletter, definitely check out my chat with Cody Sanchez from Contrarian Thinking in episode 419. Let's say you're trying to land a new client and you want to make a great impression. One way to do that is with a customized branded proposal through our sponsor FreshBooks. You can add a project outline, the scope of the project, timeline, the deliverables, and once your prospect gives you the green light, you can instantly convert it into an invoice. That's a pretty slick, simple workflow that showcases your professionalism from day zero, and instead of having to create that totally from scratch, it's already built into the robust FreshBooks platform. I've been a FreshBooks customer for years. This is the tool that I use when I need to invoice clients or advertisers but I'm just scratching the surface, truthfully, of the capability inside. Other users tell me they love the recurring payment functionality, the automated expense management, and even just time tracking to see where your hours are going. As a Side Hustle Show listener, I want to invite you to try FreshBooks completely free for 30 days. There's no credit card required. Go to freshbooks.com slash side hustle and enter the Side Hustle Show in the How Did You Hear About Us section to get started today. That's freshbooks.com slash side hustle to get more time back to build the business you love. When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search and hit the ground running with your new hire. But what if you could get rid of the search part and just get matched with qualified candidates? Well, now you can with our sponsor, Indeed. It's simple. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. The matching and hiring platform is trusted by over 3.5 million businesses worldwide to connect with great talent faster. And 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. For my next hire, 
I'm using Indeed to tap into a talent pool of 350 million unique monthly visitors. And what else is cool is Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets. And how about this? Side Hustle Show listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Just go to Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Question 11 came in from Ken, who wrote in, I've had to step away from my job because of COVID and need to generate revenue. I'm just starting a podcast about playing and coaching team sports. What are the top three things you would do to monetize? Ken, first up, congrats on starting the podcast. I still think there's a ton of room for growth in this space. Second, if you need to make money quickly, podcasting probably isn't the way that I'd go. And and this is probably disappointing news. This show is monetized in a few different ways. You probably noticed the sponsors for one. There's some affiliate income. There's some income from my own products, but none of those happened quickly. But let's talk about uh, a sports podcast. Unless you're a very talented on-air personality or bring some unique take to the world of sports, I would advise against doing a show for the sports fan just because I think that's a really competitive space and you're up against well-known, well-funded players like ESPN. Now, on the coaching side, I think this is really interesting and I think there's an opportunity there either for parents of young athletes and maybe you monetize with some digital product of your own creation or for other coaches. We did an episode with Chris Ritter from Swim Coaches Base, which is the number one podcast for swim coaches. That was episode 335, and Chris had built a pretty cool business serving that coaching audience. Again, not a huge audience, but very niche. And I think there's probably a path to create something similar in baseball, tennis, volleyball, lacrosse, you know, any number of other youth sports. Question 12 is another podcasting question. This one came in from Matthew, who asked, what's the hardest part about hosting a podcast? For me, I think this depends on where you're at. I mean, just starting out, maybe it's the the technical stuff that bogs you down. Maybe it's finding guests. Maybe it's finding your voice. One thing that I do spend some brain capacity on is deciding what episodes to create, like what stories to tell. It would be so much easier to take all comers, just accept every pitch that I get and run everybody through the same set of questions, which can totally work. But for me, it's more fun to source stories from people who don't have a dedicated PR firm trying to get them booked on podcasts. It's trying to be consistent without being formulaic. The hardest part, and maybe the most important part, is what I call climbing the listener pyramid. This is the journey from stranger to listener to subscriber to fan. Every step of the way, with every piece of content that you create, it's answering, what's in it for me? Why should I give this show a shot versus the million others that are out there? Why should I subscribe? Why should I tell my friends about it? What's in it for me. Like I said, I'm still very bullish on the future of podcasting, but I would love to see more hosts put that what's in it for me front and center. Question 13 came in from Jolene in the Facebook group who asked, how do block days work? For example, if you got a podcast, you only do interviews on Mondays, but you're interviewing someone who also does block days and only does interviews on Tuesdays. Do you break your block? Do they have to break theirs? Is there a showdown? How does it work? 
So, uh, Jolene, I know I've talked about time blocking in the past and setting up dedicated days of the week for meetings and recordings. Now, as a host, I will offer up my scheduling link to invited guests, which uh, will typically only show options on Tuesday for me. That's kind of my recording day. But I will add in that, hey, if nothing works on those days, you know, let me know. We'll work something out. As a guest, when I'm booking a time on somebody else's calendar, I will try and book those in for Tuesdays as well. But if it's not an option, I'll just pick something else that I can make work. There have only been a handful of occasions where we just couldn't come up with a time, and it was usually time zone related from different parts of the world. But bottom line, and this came from Christina in the group, if you're asking someone to be your guest, it probably makes sense to accommodate them and their schedule. Question 14 is from Greg. What's your take on the length of time for a podcast? 15 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, or just go with the good content from the conversation? This is a, it's a common question in, in the podcasting world. So Greg, uh, Joe Salcihai from Stacking Benjamins gave me the advice. There's no such thing as too long, only too boring. So as a listener, I have found myself wishing for the host and the guest to go deeper, to go longer, more often than I found myself wondering, oh man, when, when are they going to wrap this thing up? Now that said, I think if a brand new show is pumping out three-hour episodes, they're going to have a harder time getting people to take that first bite as a sample, just because three hours, you know, that's an intimidating endeavor to, to bite off. And this is becoming less of a thing with increased device storage and, you know, more and more podcast streaming. But file size is a consideration too. This is anecdotal, but all else being equal, I tend to see more downloads on episodes with a smaller file size. So if you do produce a longer show without a bunch of music, you might test exporting at a lower bit rate. Uh, I try and keep the show under, that's like super nerdy stuff. I try and keep the show under an hour, but it really does uh, depend on your format. For question 15, Robert wrote in, I'm struggling to take the plunge. I work 50 hours a week in retail. I'm over 40, but want to move into the solo cleaning business described by Ken Carfagno in episode 397. I need to support my family. I need to get really close to what I make now to keep the home, car, bills going. How do I prepare for that jump? Do I take the risk and do other odd jobs uh, on the side to fill the gap? Do I request a demotion to focus more on what I want to do? I've got a lot to lose and need to take an educated risk. What do you think? So first up, definitely check out the resources that Ken has. He's at solocleaningschool.com. Second, Robert, don't go quitting your job on me. I think you're on the right track in thinking about how to make that transition a reality. But before you do any of that, you need a cleaning customer or several cleaning customers. You need to find out if you like the work and find out if it's worthwhile to you. When those answers become yeses, you enter the toughest, but maybe the most exciting phase of side hustling to replace your day job. This is where you're still working your full-time gig and you're putting in the hours and the effort to grow and fulfill your side hustle business in your spare time. Maybe that's early mornings, maybe it's evenings or weekends, but it's very common to have this kind of sprint period. And it needs to be a sprint because it's not sustainable from a family or personal satisfaction standpoint to do long-term, where you're trying to get this business income within striking distance of the day job income. And it doesn't have to get all the way there before you quit, as long as you're confident you can get it there, given the extra 40, 50 hours a week to dedicate to it. The other option, and this has been mentioned by a few Side Hustle Show guests, 
is what I call the slowly backing out the door option. Maybe you try and go to four days a week at the day job. Then the side hustle grows a bit more and you scale it back to three days a week or 20 hours a week. Then it grows a bit more and you reduce your hours again. It doesn't work in all jobs or all professions. I get that, but this strategy definitely appeals to me. It minimizes your downside risk. It allows you to keep benefits as long as possible. And it sounds far less stressful than just flipping the switch one day and then hoping that a new income stream materializes. Question 16 is from Addy, who asked, I have an idea that if shared with anyone or with investors could be easily stolen. How do I protect it? It's not a tangible product. Even if I have somebody sign an NDA, that doesn't really stop them from telling others about it and running with it. I've had it for over a year now, but haven't mentioned it to a single soul. I need to bring it to life. Well, Addy, this is something that I've definitely stressed out about in the past, so you're not alone there. But like you said, if it continues to only live in your head, it doesn't serve anyone. So there's the technical legal answer, and then there's the mindset answer. And I think Dan DeRocher in uh, the Facebook group did a good job of tackling this from both sides. I'll try and summarize what he wrote. As an attorney, here are my two cents. First, a well-drafted confidentiality agreement will give you legal recourse if someone uses or discloses your idea. Number two, no matter how good that confidentiality agreement is, it's still just a piece of paper. It can't stop people from using or disclosing your idea, but it can give you legal remedies if someone does breach that agreement. Third, depending on your idea, you might be able to patent it, which will give you more protection, or you could file a provisional patent application, but many ideas aren't patentable. And number four, this is the mindset part, is that ideas are cheap, execution is what matters. Instead, concentrate on developing a minimum viable product and selling it to get some validation there. So Addy, a couple other anecdotes here on protecting ideas. First, like Dan said, go and execute. Depending on the niche or idea, there's some level of protection and advantage afforded in being the first mover. Next, most businesses aren't that unique and they don't need to be. I mean, look around your town at the number of dry cleaners or the number of sushi restaurants. They just went out and did it. And in the same basic business model has been replicated thousands of times. And lastly, this was an important one for me to realize. The vast, vast, vast majority of people are too busy, too worried about their own stuff to drop everything and steal your idea. If you travel a lot for work or for a vacation, you might be familiar with that feeling you get knowing you're leaving your space unused for long periods of time and you're still paying for that privilege. But hosting on Airbnb means you don't have to leave your home sitting empty when you're away. Being an Airbnb host isn't just a way to earn some extra cash. It's a chance to share your space and make a guest's vacation all the more memorable. You might be thinking, eh, maybe my place isn't the right fit, but don't write it off just yet your potential Airbnb might be right in front of you. Whether it's a spare room or even your entire home, there's an opportunity waiting. Airbnb turns your home into a practical and even profitable venture. We just got back from a family trip to Hawaii where we stayed in a great Airbnb, but our place back home could have been a highlight to somebody else's travels, and we could have used the extra cash to help pay for the trip. So if you're curious about hosting on Airbnb, find out how much your space could be worth by visiting airbnb.com slash host. Once again, that's airbnb.com slash host. I was reminded of this the other day. I'd asked somebody, this was either an email or in the Facebook group, hey, what are you working on? What's your side hustle? And the response was, yeah, right. Like, I'm going to tell you. 
And it took me a second to realize, oh, they think I'm going to steal their idea. And the truth is, I've got my own list that grows faster than I can execute on. And I think most people are probably in a similar boat, or they're just not a great fit to take action on somebody else's idea. But I do like that question, Addy. Thanks for sharing. Definitely something that I've struggled with, and hopefully that helps get things out of your head and and out into the world for you. Question 17 came in from Jake, who said, I made my first $5 in passive income from an old YouTube video. And just knowing that passive income is now real and attainable, I feel like I could run through 100 brick walls to build something successful. I don't want this feeling to fade. Besides just taking action passionately and consistently for the foreseeable future, what's your best advice for getting this newfound motivation to really stick with me? Well, Jake, that is awesome. There is something magical about those first dollars or cents or pounds or euros or pesos or yen that comes in without your direct effort. It's empowering. Maybe it's a little addicting, but it's certainly motivating to keep going. So how do you keep that newfound motivation alive? First, make progress a habit. That's your piece on taking uh, consistent action. But it was also the result, even just that $5 result, that sounds like it was the motivational spark. And I found that to be true as well. I'm all about making process-oriented goals, controlling what you can control, but trying to find ways to measure and generate results in terms of impact or income. I think that's really important. The challenge is we don't always have uh, direct control over the results, but what we can do is double down on the actions that generated those results. If I'm making money on YouTube, I'm more motivated to keep creating content for YouTube. If I'm making money selling books, I'm more motivated to keep writing. If I'm seeing traffic from SEO, great. How can I learn more and get more out of that? I'm excited for you, Jake, and hope you keep us posted on what you do end up building with this uh, with this motivation and this running through brick walls uh, attitude. Question 18 came from Paul, who said, I'm finding it difficult to grow my specific Facebook page. Any ideas or advice? Well, Paul, my recommendation would be probably to focus on a group rather than a page. Yes, pages can still be viable and can still see some organic reach, but it's not where I prioritize my time. Instead, groups rank well in Facebook's internal search engine, and early on, you can help foster engagement and build relationships with your early members. Plus, depending on how you ultimately plan to monetize, you've got a more engaged following than you would have compared to casual fans on a Facebook page. It's more work, but I believe that it's more worthwhile, if that makes sense. In fact, I was kind of completely over Facebook pages until chatting with Carrie Adam a couple weeks ago in episode 429. She's doing really well with her Running Moms Facebook page, but it's all a part of a broader Facebook marketing plan designed to help turn strangers into paying customers. If you've got a funnel like that in place or in mind, then yes, a page can be a uh, touch point, a point of discovery for new audience members. Question 19 is from Sierra. She says, this year I'm hoping to develop a new income stream. Toward the top of my list of possibilities is podcast editing. While it's not something that I've done before, I've been in the radio industry for over a decade And I'm super familiar with Adobe Audition and other editing software. I think I've got all the necessary skills. In the past, I've heard you talk about trying to find someone to edit your podcast and how that was a task you sort of struggled to let go. I was wondering what channels you used to eventually find who you have editing for you now. And I'm not sure where to focus my initial efforts. Should I go on a freelance marketplace like Fiverr? Or are there Facebook groups where you'd recommend other podcasters are hanging out? So Sierra, uh, my editing service is podcastfasttrack.com. So that is one option. Like get on with an agency 
of podcast editors, and they go out and find the clients for you. Like cashflowpodcasting.com, I think is another one, but there's a bunch of those out there. Uh, so that's one option. Another option to get started in this space is the freelance route that you mentioned going on Fiverr, Upwork. There are some dedicated like audio professional marketplaces like Soundlister. And then the third route is uh, to begin to embed yourself in some of the existing podcasting communities. The biggest ones that I'm a part of are the Podcast Movement Facebook group. And then there's another one called Podcasters Hangout. I'll link uh, both of those up for you in the show notes for this episode, sidehustlenation.com slash Q&A11. But what may be more effective than hanging out in podcasters groups is hanging out in other groups that have podcasters in them, if that makes sense, but they're not solely dedicated to podcasters. One example that comes to mind uh, is Steve Stewart. I think he did a masterful job of this in the FinCon community. Steve's at stevestewart.me. Podcasting isn't the focus of the group, but a lot of the members were starting or growing shows of their own, and he quickly became the go-to expert, you know, answering all podcast-related questions. So if you can find another group like that that has podcasters in it, but podcasting is not the sole focus, I think that's a really strong opportunity to establish yourself as the expert. And of course, you can do that. You can do that third option while you're working the first two as well. Lots of, uh, lots of ways to get going. Hope you keep us posted on the progress there. Question 20 is from Kennedy, who asked, what makes a good KPI? Well, Kennedy, uh, a KPI or a key performance indicator, and this is excerpted from uh, the Progress Journal, which you can find at progressjournal.net. First, it's got to be a number that you have influence over. It might not be easy, but with effort, you can change that. And then second, they have to have a meaningful impact on your bottom line or quality of life. Key performance indicators. So if you look at some examples, if you're an Uber driver, the price of gas directly impacts your bottom line, directly impacts your profitability, but it's not something that you have any control over, so it doesn't make a great KPI. Instead, maybe it makes more sense to track the number of hours that you drive, the number of surge rides that you give, maybe like your effective hourly rate, right? That's kind of what you're trying to back into. If you're a freelancer, you're paying attention to the flow of quality leads coming across your desk and your ability to deliver results to clients. So in terms of KPIs, you might decide to track discovery calls, the number of proposals that you send, the average project value, the average job value. Those are things that you have direct control over and make a meaningful impact in your business. In e-commerce, you might track your cost to acquire a new customer, the lifetime value of that customer, or your conversion rate on your sales pages. These are all things that you have influence over that are changeable, that are impactful. So in determining your KPIs, you got to consider the focusing question from the one thing. What's the one thing I can do right now such that by doing it, everything else will be easier or unnecessary? I'm going to repeat that because it's important. What's the one thing I can do right now such that by doing it, everything else will be easier or unnecessary? I'll leave you with that to ponder as we wrap up this round of 20 questions Notes for this episode and links to all the resources mentioned are at sidehustlenation.com slash Q&A11. Before we go, can I send you some free stuff? 75,000 people are receiving my weekly newsletter packed with money-making ideas, and I'd love to send it to you as well. You can join for free at sidehustlenation.com slash join or through the link in the episode description of your podcast player app. 
Inside, you'll also find access to hundreds of members-only goodies and bonus files that I've created over the years, including tons of tactical tips from top podcast guests, plus your invite to the world's largest, most active, and most supportive Facebook community. Big thanks to everyone for sharing those questions. That is it for me. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, let's go out there and make something happen, and I'll catch you in the next edition of The Side Hustle Show. Hustle on.